What's up, all of you beautiful people, and welcome to the second installment of the All Eyes podcast. And once again, I'm, of course, joined by the best Iowa football podcasting co-host in all of the land, Thad Nelson. Thad, uh, Saturday really kind of sucked. That's uh, probably the best way to say it. Yeah, and if you're somehow listening to this Iowa football podcast and you don't know what the result was or the final score was, of the uh, Purdue-Iowa game. You know, first off, that's just kind of really weird. Regardless, we're here to talk and about it, you know, and give our opinions and our thoughts on the game and sort of how we saw it play out. So I guess let's start off with the bad first and just rip the Band-Aid right off. You know, obviously you had the two fumbles from Sargent and Goodson that probably couldn't have come at any worse time um, given those scenarios. You also had the 10 penalties, which totaled 100 yards. And you had David Bell going off for 13 catches and three touchdowns, including the game winner. So, you know, what were the things that sort of made you the most frustrated on Saturday and during your rewatch of the game? Well, you hit, hit it right on the head. It's, it's the turnovers and a variety of those penalties, especially the, the pre-snap penalties, uh, especially. So offensively, those false starts just are drive killers. Um, I think a one, there was a third and third and two. And I was set up in wildcat, like, Hey, here's this wildcat bringing it back. Uh, and there's a false start. And now all of a sudden it's third and seven. And you just totally change the dynamic when you have those things happening. So there's false starts. And as you said, those fumbles just coming at the worst time, uh, good sins, you're driving, you're going to have a first and goal situation and you cough it up and lose it. And then sergeants, you're about ready to put the game probably on ice. You know, you're up, uh, there's six minutes left. You're pushing yourself into scoring position. I was running the ball really effectively at that time. Uh, all three running backs looked good. And a defensive back comes kind of from out of vision. And I don't think he was necessarily careless with the ball, but the ball probably wasn't as high as it should have been. So when it gets hit, instead of bumping back against the shoulder pads, uh, it drops through and, and next thing you know, Purdue's got the ball and 12 plays later in the end zone for what's the game winner. Yeah. And you know, the first fumble, it's, it's hard to um, look at that and find any kind of real strong criticism. I mean, that's just kind of an unfortunate play. Uh, Bandworth's hustling, you know, he made a great block to even get Goodson to that spot to begin with. And then Goodson just sort of, you know, the way Banwart was trying to push the pile uh, to get more yards, just kind of knocked the ball right on its head. And then in the second one with uh, Sargent, it just kind of felt like he thought he was so open in space. You know, like they, it was a great counter run, Paul, run call. Uh, number 38, the fullback, um, Monte Padabom, absolutely destroyed every single person in that game. He was a star. I mean, we're looking at a star fullback right there for sure. Um, he goes the other way. Linebackers are key in the fullback all game, it feels like, because they know he's the lead in the block. And they run a counter. It's wide open. And then all of a sudden, from right from behind, Sargent gets the ball punched out. And, you know, it's terrible timing. Um, and then, obviously, Purdue goes on what a drive that felt like forever. You know, it just – it was similar to that Michigan State and Big Ten Championship kind of game where it just felt like it was going. Third down conversion, third down conversion. Everything that could go wrong was going wrong, and it did. Um, 
and yeah, I, the, honestly, for me, the most frustrating thing, you know, looking back on it was for me, at least David Bell, because, you know, if he beats us or beats Iowa with, you know, bodying defenders, making a bunch of contested catches, stacking guys with just pure athleticism, you know, you can't do anything about it, but when he's running untouched, finding pockets all game long, and there's just no adjustment. I mean, even on the final play, um, Barrington Wade is lined up across from him, but he's not in man coverage. He's in zone. Uh, Dane Belton's all the way on the other side of the formation. So he's not clouding over Bell at all. So it's got two, two, two on two over there, and he just slips through. And it just felt like that was sort of the case all game long. On that play, yeah, there's two tight ends. They're in a two tight end set. and they just go upfield and there's a linebacker and a safety on both of them. So, and Bell is on a, on a linebacker. And as you mentioned, Wade thinks he's got zone help. He chucks and sits to the flat and Bell just comes right behind him. And there's nobody there on one of the best receivers in the nation who's been destroying them all game. And to have that happen, um, you know, Purdue with the perfect play call, but you just can't let that happen. You've got to adjust. You've got to communicate because you can't have double two tight ends and your other corner, Riley Moss is covering the running back who motioned out. So you've got to have enough numbers over there to make that play and, and double him. And I kept thinking, you know, third down, you just have to double him every third down. And they, they did occasionally, but it had to be every time, especially in that situation. Yeah, and the times that they did run um, man or at least press where, you know, they're making contact with them right off the line of scrimmage or as fast as they can, it was contested catch situations. Um, one of them he won against Matt Hankins, which it was almost a pick. It almost looked like it could go 50-50, and, you know, David Bell just ended up coming up with it. Then there was another man cover situation where it was actually OPI on David Bell, uh, on Julius Brents. So it just kind of felt like, you wish they could have gone back to the well of man coverage a little bit more and sort of just, you know, let him beat you because at a certain point when he's just running untouched, finding these pockets, sitting down and I'm going down the field and making plays down the field. Oh, somebody was in bed and came all the way downstairs. So what I thought was going to be a clean uh, communication is going to have to pause again, even if we're nine past nine. I'm sorry. I'll be right back. No, you're all good. Much, much, much later. And, you know, obviously we don't know how the uh, defensive backs coach at Iowa is teaching their DBs to play his own coverage. Um, but being in zone doesn't necessarily mean that you have to hover around an area, not touching a guy or not feeling out somebody's breaks as far as receivers go. And, you know, obviously you don't want to be handsy, but you can still play sound zone coverage and, you know, not be grabby and holding and onto these receivers. You can feel out their breaks. You can follow them. You can trust your, your instincts and your eyes. And it just felt like in this game, it wasn't even all just David Bell it was receivers in general. Iowa just kept getting lost in zone. And, you know, it was like the D backs were just looking at each other. Like, is it your fault? Is it my fault? I don't really know. And then there are some plays where a guy is in pretty good position, but he just doesn't know where the receiver is. And so he doesn't know where to go. That's what part of, you know, feeling out breaks gives you. And it's just something that I think, I don't know if it's something that, 
uh, as an early season fix that needs to make, or is it just the way that Iowa secondary coaches are teaching that? I have to imagine that it's just things that you hopefully get fixed. I, we mentioned a couple of the guys in those situations. You hope that it's just first time in those spots. So Dane Belton played a lot last year, but he was more at the cash position. He was close to the line of scrimmage. He was the one getting those chucks and staying with them. Now back at strong safety, he's kind of the secondary read. So a guy moves and then he catches them off of somebody's release. And uh, Barrington Wade in there, and, and I thought he played a pretty good game, but there was obviously some communication issues um, about where to be on those. And those are the things, you know, part of it is they're short at linebacker. So how many reps did each of those guys get at that? Wade has been a, somebody that's been a Leo and all of a sudden now he's moved inside at will. And so are his responsibilities different? Are they doing some different things? Neiman has always played a different spot. And now he's at middle linebacker. So my hope is that those are the cases because yeah, those guys are going to be watching the quarterback and making those reads, but they have to find a way to mesh those better. Iowa got lucky early in the game. Uh, Belton got, or Bell got free. He started to go inside and one safety left and then he peeled back the other way and nobody picked him back up. And I thought Purdue did a, a really good job of attacking the mesh points of Iowa's zone. They went right to where that switch or handoff was going to be and tried to make two guys make a decision. And it was really effective, especially Bell, because then he can just win one-on-one so often. Uh, he's, his route running, his physical abilities, uh, you have to be on top of your game to cover him. And it, cl- it clearly they weren't uh, good enough. Yeah, those force exchanges were really prevalent. Um, like you said, anytime he was running a shallow cross, it just felt like there wasn't the communication or the communication wasn't as effective. Nobody's picking him up at the end of the drive uh, or the last drive of the game for Purdue, the game winning drive. Ultimately there was a play on third and five um, near around the 50 yard line. Bell's just running a shallow cross. Nobody picks him up. Nobody touches him off the line. Nobody touches him at any point during his route until he's already 10 yards past the line of scrimmage. Purdue schemed Iowa's defense. I thought really well in those situations where they lined him up knowing maybe how Iowa was going to set their uh, pre-snap coverage to get him on somebody that couldn't stay with him. You know, uh, Iowa, what they wanted to do, and they did a lot in those situations when they went nickel, was Hankins slid inside. And if Bell's in the slot, you would think he'd be on him, but they moved him to a different spot. So frequently that guy couldn't get on him, or if he was, he went all the way across the formation and Iowa wasn't able to, to really stick anybody on him. And Purdue just sent guys past him. And some of the times, were they blocking before he caught it? Yeah, they were. But in college football, they just don't call that. And you can't let somebody like Bell get that open. And you got to make somebody else beat you. That's the bottom line. You have to take away their top option and hopefully then make the second option hard. And they just made it, it wasn't hard enough for Bell to beat him. Yeah, and you know, when you look back, obviously David Bell's a great player, but when you look back at his season highlight reel at the end of the year, I don't think that a lot of plays from this game, other than maybe that contested catch with Hankins, are going to be like the plays you remember because a lot of it was just, it could be anybody. You know, it, it was just, he was so open on a lot of these. He, he would just run a slight corner 
and he would just be within five yards of two defenders. And, you know, it, it just felt like there was a lot of dysfunction on Iowa's back end. And there's obviously a lot of new bodies on Iowa's back end. And so that definitely played a factor. Um, you guys, you mentioned um, the linebacker position with Barrington Wade. You know, what were your thoughts on sort of how linebacker played out? Because there was a lot of different bodies. There was, um, there was obviously Barrington Wade. There was Nick Neiman at middle linebacker. There was Justin Jacobs, who got a, quite a bit of run as well. Um, yeah, a lot of fresh faces. And obviously, Jack Campbell wasn't um, a go with Mono. I thought overall, all of them had their moments and played pretty well. Uh, Wade obviously had an interception. He had a sack um, and made some nice tackles. He and Neiman got most of the snaps because Iowa was just in nickel so much. Uh, I think Jacobs only played maybe 18 or 20 snaps. Was pretty good in those situations, but just they didn't have him on the field as much. They were getting Julius Branson as the fifth defensive back. So it was pretty clear that uh, Phil Parker likes that option better than bringing maybe uh, Belton down inside and adding a, a new safety. He feels more comfortable as those are kind of their top five guys on the, on the backside. And I thought the linebackers overall were pretty good. There were missed tackles. Uh, I thought that was something that really affected Iowa. It's not a shock. We saw that nationwide in a lot of these situations. We saw that in the NFL as well. And when you go back to the numbers, Purdue threw 50, 50 times and still didn't reach 300 yards. So they weren't that ineffective. Uh, I wrote in the rewatch of Purdue's first 10 possessions, Iowa forced five three and outs. Half the time, Purdue was three and out. But the last two drives, you have a 14-play drive and a 12-play drive. And whether that's guys being tired, which probably was the case, and also Purdue making some adjustments to what Iowa was doing, and that last drive, you had that face mask, and that's on Heflin, which that's one of those penalties you can't be mad about. The guy making a play, that's not a mental mistake. That's not a – he was there. Uh, he's a little off balance. He actually got held. So as he was regaining his balance, he reached out and brushed the face mask. But that was a killer because all of a sudden, instead of a long situation, now it's a first down and, and back the mo momentum to that offense. Yeah, and I think we should preface this before we start, you know, giving out critiques. I don't, I'm not going to speak for you, but I honestly believe that if you go position group by position group on offense and defense, literally the only the secondary for Iowa was worse than Purdue. Because I feel like across the board, Iowa had a great game at all of these spots, and they just looked like clearly the better team. It was just that Purdue lingered around. I mean, we talked about, you know, Justin Jacobs getting a little bit of run, not that many snaps. You said around 20. That sounds about right to me. But on those 20 snaps, you saw his explosiveness. You saw how he attacked pulling guards and fullbacks. And you just you can't watch him play and not get excited about his future. I honestly thought the worst-looking linebacker, and this isn't even a knock on him, was Nick Neiman because it looked like sometimes he just kind of got lost in his run fits or got tangled up with another linebacker. Um, it also should be mentioned that Phil Parker went blitz crazy in this game. I, on the broadcast, I remember watching the broadcast and them saying, you know, I was not a team that really blitzes a whole lot on defense. Well, it felt like at a certain point after the first quarter, it was a blitz every other snap, whether it was Hankins, 
Barrington Wade came on at least 10, it felt like. Um, Justin Jacobs came on one. There was times where they would blitz two linebackers. So, you know, what were your thoughts seeing that? And I, I don't think it was overly effective, but it was just a definitely a different look for Iowa's defense. You could tell Phil Parker was looking for something to disrupt that offense, as you said, especially after the, the early touchdown drive. And as you said, he was bringing everybody. Hankins was coming several times. Wade, Wade and Neiman, Jacobs. They did a lot of zone blitzing where uh, I know Joe Evans dropped back. Then Valkenberg dropped back. There were a couple plays where they would drop one guy and another guy, like even Nixon was on a quarterback, a spy on his sack. It was really a two man rush. Uh, and all of a sudden quarterback breaks contain a little bit and Nixon's spying him at 300, what, 305, 310 and makes a great play. He was fantastic um, all game long, but you could tell they don't really trust their ability to get home a lot with the front four. And especially Purdue makes it tough too. It's a ton of timing, quick routes. Uh, even in the past, I think the last couple of years, I was only had one sack a year, maybe, maybe two against them. And they had two and really should have been a third. Wagner had, had O'Connell and went to throw him down and, and didn't get him to the ground. But they got home and enough, but he was convinced or he was determined he wasn't just going to let them sit back and pick him apart and they didn't get home a lot and they disrupted timing a few times but but probably not enough yeah and you know we now that we're talking a little bit about the front four I guess we'll stay on the defensive side of the ball and then work our way to the offense but that front four you know Davion Nixon I that guy's a star I I, I already said it about Monte Padovan but I mean legitimate star Davion Nixon that guy was – he's like a like a boa constrictor biting a mouse, it just feels like. You know, it's just – he once he gets a hold of you, it's just like he viciously wraps you and swirls you around. He's so explosive. He's so quick. He's so long. Um, gosh, it just felt like he was all over the place in the run game. He was – like you said, he was dropping back, sneaking out screens. Um, he was getting home on the passer. They had their hands full inside. They kept on doubling him at the end of the game. And even Van Valkenburg, um, he made some plays at, I think, after the halftime point where it's just like, okay, there's something here with him. Um, he, was, he has quick hands. He's definitely a good athlete. Chauncey Golston had a lot of wins. Um, I also thought Jack, ha Jack Heflin uh, a few times, especially on that last drive, other than the face mask, which, again, you know, it's one of those penalties you just you got to live with because he's trying to make a play. And it's just kind of unfortunate. But there was another play. I believe it was either third and two or fourth and two. He stands up the left guard. They're running right at him. And they body him at the line, uh, the line of scrimmage. He's trying to tackle a running back, hold the left guard in place. And he's doing his job. I thought he played really well. Um, and then I, other than that, you know, you, you had guys rotate in and out like Noah Shannon um, and John Wagner who missed a – pretty big sack at, at one point but other than that I thought the front four individually played really well and there's definitely a star there in Davion Nixon for sure yeah overall when you go to grade them out at the end of the day uh, they all had their moments you mentioned Nixon was all over he had there's time on film I just started laughing he basically does a running back jump cut he takes one step to his right and he jump cuts to the left and goes right by the guard and he had another play where 
he makes a quick read and tackles David Bell on a receiver tunnel screen that he got past the line and noticed everybody moving and he read it so quick. And then it's one thing to read it, but to be able to go out and make that play, as you said, he is a star and he was fantastic and everybody else had their moments. I think Heflin will keep getting better. He's still learning exactly what Iowa wants him to do, but big body moves well, um, made plays, not just in his spot, but got to sidelines, which I think is really important for, for somebody of his size. And you know, Joe Evans came in and did a little bit. Golston would have had one sack. I think he probably had five or six other, what you might call pressures or hurries. Um, and they all had moments, but late in the game, Purdue was able to start running the ball, was able to start hitting some quick passes that kind of took them out. And on the final play, Nixon couldn't even be in there because he had been chasing the quarterback all around. So when you throw it 50 times, that's a lot of pass rushing, especially I think Nixon played 71 out of 82 snaps. And when you throw it 50 times, uh, that's a lot of work, especially as you mentioned, they just started doubling doubling him because they had no, uh, no other option against him. Yeah. You know, obviously a D tackle, you're explosive. You have to be explosive in college, uh, especially at three tech. And when you're exploding into a double team, you're exerting all the energy, then they're throwing quick passes down the field and you could theoretically make a play. So you got to turn and run 71 times out of 82 snaps. I mean, that's going to take, you know, a load for sure. Like out of your, you know, stamina for sure. And at the end of the game, at the end of the last drive, it did look like Iowa's defense was very fatigued. There was a lot of missed tackles. There was a lot of missed tackles on the edge um, throughout the game, um, you know, from Julius Brents and, and Dane Belton. But, yeah, other than that, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about on the defense? Anybody you want to, like, you know, highlight? I thought Kerner played pretty well on the back end. He made a lot of really physical tackles coming up. And for the most part, he feels you feel like he knows his role on the back end. He's pretty comfortable. He's in his zones. He's coming up at the right times. I thought he played really well um, and has really continued to grow. And it was good to see him out there after uh, his injury over the summer. You just didn't know if he was going to be available right away. So I thought he played well in, in 24 points against Purdue. We'll, we'll get to the offense, but 24 points against Purdue should be enough to win that game. Yeah. And I think we both thought even without, Brom and uh, Rondell Moore that Purdue was going to put up points. I mean, there was too much player turnover on defense and they're still a talented team and they're still a talented, um, you know, the, the scheme drop off isn't going to be too great. The play calling in game might've been better with uh, Jeff Brom, but they still were making great play calls. They fed their stud and David Bell, obviously, and Horvath, you know, he, he did what, we kind of thought when we saw that, you know, we were so thin at linebacker and losing four or five linebackers from last year. Um, but yeah, like you said, I think that 24 points should probably get it done. And that sort of leads us to the offense and the person that is definitely at the center point of a lot of discussion is Spencer Petrus. Uh, and, you know, I think something that you'll hear a lot of people say about, inexperienced QBs, whether it's at, you know, the NFL level or the college football level is that the game sort of moves a little bit fast um, for them at the start, you know, and as a viewer, you can definitely see that it's not just like a mental thing. 
you know, you can actually physically see that even on the broadcast angle, you know, if you're watching a normal passing play and you just start to feel that level of like anxiousness for the quarterback and you see him making those jerky movements and his head's going all over the place and he doesn't know whether to pull it down or run it or keep it up and pass it. That's what it means when the game's moving too fast. You watch Aaron Rodgers, you watch Russell Wilson, they look calm, whether they're in the pocket, whether they're out of the pocket, whether the other team is blitzing. And there were times where he definitely felt a little bit twitchy, a little bit non-composed. And, you know, that's what it kind of looks like when the game's moving a little bit fast for you. Early on, you could, as you said, you could just see it. You could see it in his mechanics. You could see it in his pre-snap. Sometimes they'd zoom on his, on his face. And you just see he's, he's moving his eyes and looking, but it's not a controlled scan. It is a little bit erratic with his eye movement. Uh, he's settled in okay. One thing, you know, they say play action is a quarterback's best friend, and I was able to run, but he was two for seven on play action. And I thought especially on his boot action, you could see he's aiming and just thinking a little too much. I thought um, one time I just think he made a poor read on who to throw to when he threw to Amir Smith-Marset, but he had uh, Bayer, I believe, once open for a pretty big play and overshot him, and he made a, another read that I didn't love on, on another one, but he was just erratic, but as it went, it was actually the time he finally pulled it down on third down and scrambled and got hit. I was like, that's what he needed because after that uh, he rattled, I think 13 of his next 15 he completed and he looked like a different guy. And you're going to have that with a first time quarterback. And I know I have probably a different opinion than a lot of people watching it, but I was really pleased with what I saw for the most part. It was nervous at first. You can tell he's still thinking a little bit on, especially those boot actions when he has time to kind of scan but man, the ball comes out well. And it's not just the velocity. They kept talking about the power. And, but he has touch. He has a quick release. He has all the things you want. He made good decisions. You know, he didn't have any interceptions. And there weren't really any, like, close calls where a guy just drops it or he throws it behind a guy. He missed in the right spots. So I'm, you know, last week I said I'm on that bandwagon. I'm still on it. What I saw really has me excited for his future. Uh, but he's, he had to get those first ones out, those jitters out, and he does need to improve on that, his mobility passing. Yeah, and I think you nailed it. Um, overall, I, I can't look at Spencer Petrus's game against Purdue and not be excited for what he showed. I mean, in the beginning of the game, in the first quarter, there were some plays that were a little bit high, um, arguably catchable, but you know, there were some plays that definitely rode up on him a little bit. And like you said, it looked like every time he booted out and he was trying to throw on the run, it looked like he was aiming. He just did not look comfortable on those plays, but he's such an athlete. And I think that really showed on, you know, his seven step drops with the, which were very few and far between, but the one that really stands out, was the, the miss early in the game off play action to Brent Smith. Um, I mean, he wang that thing like 60, 70 yards down the field and in the air. And, but on that drop on the play action, the athleticism, he was there in a blink. And that, that running back, whoever it was, was about 10 yards behind him. And he was there in a second. And obviously, you know, you can tell Spencer Petras had a great upbringing as far as um, quarterback mechanics go because his feet are 
gorgeous. Up there with Nate Stanley as far as, far as just having a solid base to throw from every single time he sets back. Um, there, were some, there were some out routes to Brandon Smith, to Sam Laporta, um, that he just hit on the money. Like he stepped back, didn't even think about it, just ripped it, and it was there in a blank. And it, it's hard to look at those plays and not get excited. There were some throws at the end of the game where he just kind of sailed it too much, and it looked like maybe he was pressing. And obviously, and there's also some plays where Purdue mixed up a lot of blitz looks at the end of that, on that final drive, that is. And it looked like he didn't have a lot of um, offensive line control where he's making, he's allowed to make shifts to the line or whether he knows it, because there was a play where pre-snap, it looked like just a base four, three kind of alignment. But then as the play, you know, drew on pre-snap just a little bit, they brought some linebackers up. They brought some safeties up. There was no change. And Kyler Schott was put in a position to guess against two players in George Karloftis, who had an incredible game, and then a linebacker number six. And Kyler Schott just guessed wrong, and it ended up, you know, getting Spencer Peters hit on a throw to Tyron Tracy down in the flat. And he missed high because he got hit. So there's definitely going to be some growing pains with an inexperienced young quarterback but there's a lot to like there. And I, there's no, if you were a believer in him coming into this game, there's no reason to get off now. He, the ball comes out different. And I think that's the thing when you watch, and it's not just, as I said, it's not just a velocity thing. It's just, it's released quicker. It's tighter. It's, it's just different. You know, you watch film of, of these different guys and you watch all these games and there are very few players in college football that release the ball the way he does. And as you said, his footwork on his drop is good. He was balanced. I thought his pocket presence for the most part was pretty good. He stood tall. You know, he, he released once to go uh, scramble. And I think the coaches probably would say, you know, don't be afraid to do that sometimes. I think that third down and 10 run where he picked up eight, you could tell he came off to the sideline. And I think it was uh, Coach O'Keefe kind of shook his head like, okay, that's what we need you to do at times because once earlier – I think there was a chance that he could have picked up a first down and he was a little reluctant to run. And you see those things and, and the pieces are there, the receivers are there. He's going to continue to get better, but his abilities, his natural abilities and his coached abilities will give him and this offense opportunities to do things that other offenses simply cannot. Yeah. And you know, he is definitely an athlete. There's no question about it. He's got really great athleticism. Definitely more athletic than uh, C.J. Beathard. Definitely more athletic than Nate Stanley. One of the more athletic guys that we've seen at the quarterback position for Iowa in quite some time, which hasn't even, you know, scratched the surface yet in terms of that. So it'll be interesting to see as the year goes on, you know, him grow more confident uh, and, you know, running the ball and sort of being willing to take off because that's a different dynamic that I was off – another dynamic that Iowa's offense could take. And um, before we go into sort of the running back position and the receiver position, I kind of want to focus on what the group that I thought was the absolute best in terms of just a position group in this game for Iowa, the offensive line. There, there wasn't just five great offensive linemen in this game. You know, there was Cody Entz, Cole Banwert, um, Alaric Jackson, Tyler Linderbaum, Keller Schott. Uh, it just felt like, everybody was contributing to this unit 
And when they would switch out, you know, um, uh, Koi Kronk with Kallenberger and, um, you know, whether it was Kalashat with Cody Ince or Cole Baymark with Cole, um, Co- uh, Cody Ince, it just didn't miss a beat. Cody Ince is a good player. It's going to be hard to figure out who, you know, fits in those spots because every single player really showed a lot of promise and made quality plays. And I felt like every time I was jotting a note down on a run play, I mean, it, it was two or three guys who were leading to that run being opened up along with also, we should be mentioning um, Sean Beyer and um, Monte Padabom, the fullback number 38, who again, absolute star. Every single time he was on a lead block situation, the dude who he was freed up against was getting smashed. There was no whiffs. He didn't whiff one time. He made solid contact, moved the dude out of the running lane. And that's, it, that's why when you look at the receiving numbers, you know, a lot of these dudes don't have targets because they were lining up in 21 personnel half the freaking game. <laughs> he, was, he was fantastic. As you said, he hit people and hit them clean. And a lot of that credit too goes to the line. They made their initial block. So he was able to get to linebackers. He was able to get to defensive backs and the biggest thing I saw the improvement compared to last year was the interior line was able to get to their spots. And Iowa had three or four pretty nice runs off of cutbacks. And we barely saw any of that last year because the problem they had last year, the interior at times was a mess and there was no cutback lane, whether it was missing a cut or missing a reach block. And one of Iowa's first big gains, Goodson got a cut, a big cutback because Kronk had a great cut block to his side. He actually got two guys on it. And I think shot was on that side at that point and he cleared a guy out. So there's these big lanes and they were getting pushed up the middle and that's not a bad Purdue defensive line. As you said, Karloftis is up there. Neil is up there and they were moving guys and creating the seams and, and Iowa ran for 195 yards and the three running backs look good. They got uh, Smith-Marset involved on a reverse and a jet motion action, and they gave up one sack. And you go against somebody like Karloftis, it's sort of like Epinesa last year. I always thought if he got one sack in a game, tip of the cap to the offensive line, they did a good job. And it's the same with Karloftis. He got one. He, uh, Koi Kronk got a little bit off balance with his, with his punch and kind of missed him and he gave him a long arm and, and got to Petrus. But for the most part, the line played really well. And uh, kudos to them because that, that was a big step that Iowa needed to take, especially for the run game. Yeah, and you mentioned George Karloftis. You can't really review this game objectively without, you know, mentioning him. Um, gosh, he is an incredible player. He had Alaric ja- Jackson on skates multiple times. He beat Koi Kronk, as you said. They were lining him up at three-tech throughout the game as well, and he was giving problems to Cody Ince and Kyler Schott and Cole Banwar and everybody. But, you know, when you can mitigate him and not let him take over the game, you're winning. Um, And Lorenzo Neal was pretty much a non-factor throughout this game. He had one good rip move on Tyler Linderbaum that ended up being a hold by Tyler Linderbaum. But other than that, he was moved off the snap every single play that he was on the floor, like on the field when they would run at him. So I, you can't look at this Iowa offensive line and 
you know, not be impressed. That was an incredible performance. Um, Sean Byer also was part of that performance. Um, it just felt like Koi Kronk and Sean were really in lockstep with each other. Uh, and like you said earlier, last year, it just this felt like a game, one of the cleanest games in terms of climbing to the second level and getting second level separation and space for your running backs that I was had in quite a bit of time. And last year they obviously had Tristan Wirfs um, and a lot of the same people are players that they have right now, but it just felt like no matter which side they were running to, there was a guy in front of them leading the way, setting an effective block. As you mentioned, it was just cleaner, you know, in, in all of their reaches and all of their seals uh, on Sergeant's fumble that you mentioned earlier, great counterplay, the entire line, and the fullback all slant right, except for Linderbaum, who peels back left, and he does what he does out in the open, just destroys a guy. And, and that play happens because all those guys slant, but they hit their guys. You know, it, there, was, there were no misses. So then Linderbaum can come around and get to a second-level block. And I thought that part of it was really clean. And you know it's clean when those cutback lanes are there because you don't have backside pursuit making the play as the running back is stringing it out. That is a, a huge plus and is going to help this offense. And it wasn't just the zone scheme. It was the gaps as they were bringing guys around. Ince had a couple where he pulled around and just crushed a guy. So those are the things that are really promising down the road because for Iowa to win games, we know when they run the ball, there's a pretty high likelihood of them winning. Yeah, and you know how effective an offensive line is when you run a counter play and there's just nobody in the vicinity because the entire defense is thinking, damn, this offensive line's good. They've been killing us all game. We have to kind of cheat. You know, we have to get in front of those reach blocks. We have to get that pursuit. And when you run a counter play and they're pulling the center and nobody's in the area except for a cornerback who's getting lit up by Tyler Linderbaum, you know that, you know, Iowa's offensive line is leaving an impression on that defense. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of, times where I was offensive line was put in a position where they had to hold up for a lot of time pass pro. Um, I think a lot of that was just because uh, a Spencer Petrus and just not wanting to sort of put too much on him right off the bat. There's a lot of quick timing passing um, a lot of misdirection. If there wasn't quick time passing, they took their biggest two deep shots of the game. I think were off play action under center. So there wasn't a lot of time where they did have to hold up against that pass rush of George Karloftis and those guys, um, which obviously benefited them. But when they did, you saw strong anchors from guys like Alaric Jackson and Koi Kronk and uh, Kyler Schott and Tyler Linderbaum. And that's just very encouraging, especially when you have an offense, as we mentioned in week one of this podcast, of just a lot of receiving options to throw to down the field. And I think that just leads to, you know, watching it and rewatching it. I, I came away just almost miffed. I mean, I know why Iowa lost. There were turnovers. There were penalties that killed drives. But the offense did what it wanted when it wanted. And that's a positive going forward. But Iowa beat themselves in those situations with untimely turnovers, untimely penalties because there was so many good things, guys grading out well on a lot of things that they did, but those other things kept it from being points. I mentioned last week, the last two years, Iowa's thrown the ball well against Purdue, but only one touchdown in those last two games. Well, 
now it's one touchdown in three games and going over 250 yards passing each of them. So they weren't able to get enough of that turned into points. And part of that were the turnovers. You had two fumbles that, that probably cost, it was probably 14 points. The way Iowa was moving the ball at those times, I don't, I don't see any way Purdue was going to stop them. And Iowa made, I really liked the adjustments. You could tell that last, the last few years, Iowa has really struggled short yardage. So they came out in Wildcat a couple times. They had it set up three times. And it's just a way, another way to get a numbers advantage. It's one more guy to get a hat on. And they also had on their touchdown run with Sargent, uh, jet motion with Regani. And again, it gives you a number advantage. When he jets across, that holds backside pursuit. So you don't have to worry about anybody cutting it off from the backside or chasing it down. So they had some really nice adjustments on things they've struggled with in the past, but the turnovers, the mental penalties, those are the things that, that can get cleaned up. And if they do, uh, there are a lot of positives moving forward into this Northwestern week and the future weeks. Yeah. And I think some of the, uh, it might've been the impulsive kind of reaction on Twitter and, and other social medias was that, you know, Brian Ferentz failed in this game um, because offense only put up 20 points with all these weapons. And, you know, obviously you and I were impressed, but moving forward, what are reasonable expectations for Brian Ferentz and managing all these weapons? Because is it a thing of like too many cooks in the kitchen and you don't have a true identity because a lot of these guys have different sort of skill sets. You know, I don't remember that vividly from um, an evaluation kind of perspective, how it was when there was uh, Moayaki, DJK, McNutt, and Wager, and Adam Robinson, and whoever else, you know, sharing the field. I honestly can't remember, but was it a situation where, you know, one game, one guy would get all the targets and just kind of go off, and they would just ride the hot hand in the passing game and in the running game? And because when you look at some player like a, like a Tyrone Tracy, his targets, he probably only had three or four this entire game. And he, when you look at the hierarchy of the, the receiving core, from what it looks like, it goes Amir, Brandon Smith, Nico Regani, Tyron Tracy. And a lot of these, you know, spread looks that they ran three by one sets, Tyron Tracy wasn't on the field. Um, so is this going to be a game where, you know, they're just shifting who breaks out and who goes off and who gets sort of these target shares? Well, the, the saying Ference always has is the ball goes where it goes. Sometimes you don't dictate, the defense does. But as Purdue showed, sometimes you just have to dictate. I think Bell had 21 targets or, or something close to that. And not that you have to force feed somebody, but you do need those. But as you said, you've got to spread them out. You have to target Smith. We didn't mention Sam Laporta, his ability to receive. They targeted uh, Goodson several times. Now, a few of those were uh, late, in a, late in the half when Purdue was in a deep drop and it was just the underneath guy, but they hit him on that big 40-yard swing pass. So you, you want to get him involved in the pass game and you want to get all those guys involved. So I think you do try to find the hot hand, but you have to scheme ways to get Amir the ball. Uh, obviously, they tried to get Smith. I'll, I'll pause and come right back to that, that comment. <laughs> 2,000 years later. 
obviously they schemed, tried to hit Brandon Smith on that long pass early. They went uh, to Smith Marset on one as well. And after his reverse, you know, he kind of grabbed his, his hamstring. And, and I noticed then when he would run some of his deeper routes, he'd come off after that. So I don't know if he's a hundred percent, but I think you just have to find ways to keep all those guys involved and engaged. So if you throw it, you know, 30 times a game, you know, nobody's going to jump off the page with probably with 10 or 12 targets, but you have to put each of those guys maybe in a situation to do what they do best. You know, for Smith, that's winning on the outside for somebody like Tracy, that's getting him in space and letting him make plays after the catch for Laporta. It's working those second levels and getting mismatches because we said it last week, he's the next one. He's the next guy at tight end. That's going to win awards. That's going to be playing on Sundays. So you spread it out. And, and then the same thing goes at running back. I thought all three guys looked good. Goodson's the most explosive. He can do a little bit of everything. They trust Sargent and Ivory Kelly Martin, who I really liked as a freshman had some of that pop again. So to go back to your point, I think the big thing is maybe you're not going to load up on targets, but continue to find ways to get each guy in their best situation. Yeah. And, you know, before we do go on, um, there was one guy who definitely looked like the off season and all of these sort of delays kind of affected more than anybody in the offense. And that was Amir Smith-Marset. I mean, he had the false start. He had the penalty of pulling the guy off the pile, which is kind of whatever that that's kind of a weird penalty to ever be called in any kind of scenario. But then you also had uh, plays down the field where he had drops, which aren't necessarily new, but there was also the deep ball shot that he was trying to get a PI call and just didn't look like he was trying to fight for the ball, which was in catchable kind of range. If he just, you know, fights back towards it. Um, It wasn't his best game. I do think that, you know, he's going to come out and try to make amends for all of that. But there were, you know, it's just kind of a learning process with a new quarterback. Um, obviously a weird off season. Um, this is technically, I believe, week eight of the college football season. I would just have the first game. So there's going to be these kinds of weird transitional things um, heading on. And with Amir, with some of those penalties, I wonder if it's a guy just trying to do too much, you know, wanting to make plays, wanting to do all the right things, wanting to make the big play and just doing a little bit too much and trying to make every play at once. Avocados? Yes, you have avocados. I thought you were going to stay upstairs. Well. All right, this better be the last time. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> because I need to take you upstairs. A little longer than a few minutes later. With all that said, you know, it is a new week. There is a new opponent, and it's one of those, another one of those teams, should I say, that just sort of lingers around against Iowa every time they play. And, you know, what are you looking forward to most heading into this game against Northwestern as far as, you know, matchups are concerned, individual player performances, usage, or just kind of coaching? The thing I'm most interested to see is can the offense continue to have all the plus plays? So can the line win? Uh, there's going to be a really good linebacking core. I, I like their defensive backs. Obviously, we watched Northwestern play Maryland, who was hot garbage, um, and that's being nice to Maryland. So 
I want to see how do, can Iowa still win the line of scrimmage against Northwestern, who is going to be a tough and disciplined team. The last two years, I think Iowa scored 20 points last year and maybe 14 points the year before or something like that. And they need to be able to be better offensively because Northwestern is, is better offensively this year. New offensive coordinator, grad chance for uh, quarterback. Uh, I like the running back. So Iowa needs to, but Iowa needs to be able to find a way to put up points. And, and when they get in those situations, when they cross midfield, to be able to put up more points and obviously take care of the turnovers, some of the mental mistakes. But really the thing I want to see is some points because last year, even the points they had, you know, I think Tyron Tracy made a big play where he broke about four tackles on a 50 yard touchdown. And other than that, it, it, there wasn't much to be excited about the offense. So if we see another game of offensive line winning the majority and winning all their one-on-ones, I think we're going to see a good outcome. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting heading into this week, um, just sort of the perspective on who Northwestern is and how good they are. Because like you said, Maryland was hot garbage. I mean, they, they might as well be like a JV high school team the way they looked. It was really bad. They had no kind of coherency. They didn't know what a run fit was on defense. They were out of the running lanes. It looked like miles wide on these running lanes. So, you know, and there's a reason for that. Maryland was breaking in. I looked this up. I was kind of mind blind blown at this stat, but they were breaking in 57 new players on this roster um, after last season, ending on a nine game losing streak with the guys that they had. So I, that's, I, it's hard to, you know, do anything with that, but I mean, they looked, they looked it, they looked that bad. Um, with that said, you know, when you're looking at this Northwestern team, it's weird trying to evaluate them coming into this game because there's not a lot of um, sort of games to look at that would give you a good idea of what Northwestern is going to pose to Iowa because that game, I just kind of look over it and, and I'm like, there's nothing really to learn here. They did whatever they wanted to do. I mean, they ran for uh, or they totaled 543 total yards just based on my notes and they recorded four of their five total touchdowns on the ground and it just felt like they scored every single time in the first half on every single drive and with that said there's a lot of reason why you can't really peg Northwestern coming into this game because the new offensive coordinator is Mike Bajakian uh, who you know this is the first year with him they also have a lot of guys who opted out so Rayshon Slater, who is going to possibly be a first-round draft pick in the 2020 NFL Draft at left tackle, he decided to opt out. They're breaking a lot of new defenders on defense. The only ones that really carried over with significant playing time is coincidentally all three linebackers and Greg Newsom, their corner, who is quite the player. He was definitely up there in pass breakups last year in the Big Ten. And then you also look at some of the other players that uh, Northwestern retained on offense, there wasn't a lot of guys. They brought in two grad transfers. Um, they brought in the tight end from Florida Atlantic who had quite the game uh, against Maryland. And they also brought in Peyton Ramsey from Indiana at quarterback. And that looks completely different now, you know, and when you look at Peyton Ramsey, it definitely reminds you of Anthony Brown who played at Boston college under Mike Bajakian, as far as a guy who, doesn't do a whole lot, but he is a steady performer who has good touch and he's a good athlete and you want to get him outside of the pocket and he, cause he can make some plays. 
But this Northwestern team, I'll admit it, I really don't know. I have no idea how good they are. I don't know how talented they are because they really just haven't played anybody with the guys that they have and the coaches that they have right now, other than Pat Fitzgerald. One thing I really want to see is how aggressive does Phil Parker get? Does he start bringing a bunch of blitzes like he did against Purdue? Because I don't see anybody on that Northwestern roster out wide that's going to win a bunch of one-on-ones. I mean, not just no David Bell, but there's not even a, a second or third tier guy that I'm like, oh, you know, that, that guy's a problem. You know, you said the tight end had some catches. Uh, they have some guys that are okay, but they're breaking in a, a true freshman on the offensive line who looked great. Iowa recruited the guy. Um, he played well, but it's going to be different, you know, going up, up against if I was moving Golston around or even Ben Volkenberg or when Joe Evans comes in. So do they try to bring some more blitz packages to put some pressure on Ramsey because he just dropped back and he could look wherever he wanted. He's not a guy with a big, strong arm. Um, the ball kind of gets shot put and kind of floats out of his hand, but coaches son and plays like it. And he's effective outside the pocket and where he's his best is when they get in scoring position, I, you know, when they get it about the 30 yard lighter in, that's when he does start to look to take off and run. And he makes some plays from the 30 end, whether it's picking up a first down or just breaking away from a pass rush. So Iowa is going to have to be careful and make sure they contain. So do they bring some blitzes? Do they bring some spy or do they have some spies uh, on him? Because I don't see Northwestern winning on the outside, but with their run game, I like Bowser. And they try to muddle it up. They do kind of what Iowa do, does. They're going to have some zone scheme. They have some gap scheme. But they just basically on their offensive line, at least when I watch, it looks like they're just trying to muddle everything up, make it a mess. And then they just got outside all day against Maryland. And I don't think that's what they want to do all the time. Maybe with Anderson, um, their second back that they bring in. And he's he's quick. And he's a guy that could get outside. But I just don't see them being able to run that way. Their third and fourth string running backs each broke 20 plus yard runs. So that tells you what Maryland was doing. And, and as you said, I have no clue what their run fits. So if Iowa contain that, uh, Ramsey is going to make some first downs. He's going to just kind of plod them forward. But I don't see them being able to make the big plays that I think Iowa can win and make. You know, Goodson, Smith, Smith, Marset, even Laporta, probably better every spot on that side uh, compared to Northwestern. You know, and, and something that really stood out to me when I was, uh, I believe, reading an article on Inside NU, which is the SB Nation uh, Northwestern site, they talked about how, uh, let me believe, let me check my notes. Yeah, so the group of uh, defensive linemen uh, and actually Northwestern's defense as a whole only sacked Maryland's quarterback one time throughout the entire game and only forced three hurries. And when you look at the Maryland offensive line, it was not good. So Northwestern's defensive line, we just talked about how great Iowa's offensive line was against Purdue. And I believe that Purdue has definitely some better players than uh, Northwestern does on their defensive line, because I believe one of their players that opted out for the season, uh, Sand Up Miller was a defensive lineman uh, on, in, in the inside no Joe Gaziano anymore. Uh, so it just kind of looks like 
they have a bunch of young pieces on the defensive line that really haven't even gotten their feet wet yet. And Iowa's offensive line looked um, college peak kind of season the way they were playing against Purdue. They had to bring down, and Maryland wasn't doing much, but they had to bring down their safeties and bring cornerbacks on some blitzes to try to hurry th- to rush some things for Maryland. And I mean, I do like they have a, a sophomore, Brandon Joseph, at safety. And he's not really, he's not very big. He looks like a sophomore, um, but he's really quick. And they brought him down into the box. Now, the question is against Iowa, can they pick him up? You know, does he get washed out on some of those? You know, somebody like Sean Byer, Laporta, or, or if Potterbaum gets a shot at him. I mean, that's huge advantage, Iowa. So on the back end, Newsom's really good. Uh, he jumps off when you watch them, but they're not very experienced, I think, at some of the other spots, and they're not real big. So are they going to try to bring those guys into the box and make Iowa um, one-dimensional? And, and Iowa struggled. Last year, there was really no offense. Iowa didn't run the ball well. They didn't pass it well. But two years ago, Iowa threw it pretty well and, and ran okay. So it's going to be interesting to see, does what appears to be an improved offensive line unit, you know, you lose Werfs, but the group as a whole is, is playing pretty well right now through the first game. Are they forced to start bringing those linebackers on blitzes? Because if they are, now all of a sudden – those crossing routes, you get Laporta working that level. All of a sudden, you start bringing receivers on crossing routes, and that's gonna could cause a lot of problems for their defense. Yeah, and especially because Northwestern's MO is sort of shutting down the run and making you beat them with the pass game. That seemingly plays into the hands of Iowa, at least heading into the season. That's what we kind of would have thought. But, you know, week one, Iowa's crutch was that running game. Uh, like we said, a lot of 21 personnel like in that game against Purdue – not a lot of 11 personnel. So there wasn't a lot of three receiver sets on the field for Iowa in that game until they were in sort of pass mode only. Um, And when you look at sort of the personnel that Northwestern has on defense, the three guys that stand out other than Greg Newsom are, you know, linebacker, Patty Fisher, Blake Gallagher, and Chris Bergen. Um, That they've been a trio, I believe, is it three or four years now? And Patty Fisher is sort of the guy that's the, the stud in that group. And he, he looks at, he knows where to go. He knows where to fit. He's a big dude, lengthy dude at six, four, and he doesn't miss tackles. So it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, Iowa comes into this game and approaches this game on offense based on how they sort of attacked Purdue last week. Patty Fisher is there for Iowa fans that don't know much about Northwestern. He's their Josie Jewell guy that has been there makes plays everywhere knows exactly what's going on. He finishes so well, uh, as you said, doesn't miss tackles. He, he's an animal in there. So if they can get to those second levels and get him blocked, that's going to say a lot about the progress that the line has made and continues to make. And, you know, it could be a spot where Goodson just has to make one guy miss. And if he can get into that, you know, good things are going to happen. I think what I'm seeing is I think they're going to try to make Iowa make Petrus show that he can beat him, make win some one-on-ones. But Laporta had a nice game. This was his breakout last year, and that included the 40-yard pass that got overturned. He still had a really nice game. So I think he can win some one-on-ones, and obviously the receivers uh, have a chance to win those too because I think 
Purdue or Northwestern is going to be forced to bring extra help down into the box. And Iowa, for the first time in probably two or three years, was effective at running against eight-man box against Purdue. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And it's going to be an interesting kind of game to see. It's going to be an interesting chess match between those two because it's seemingly going to be a clash of, you know, which style is going to be just better because it's kind of – it's like one of those um, stereotypical, you know, you do this well – and I have the other equivalent on the offensive side. Let's see who wins. Um, so I guess with that said, you know, I believe the line is minus two and a half for Iowa coming this game, which is a big drastic difference from when they were doing preseason lines and Iowa, I believe was a double digit favorite of maybe 14 plus or minus 14. So who do you think is going to come out on top in this game is minus two and a half a good line for Iowa fans to take, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, I thought, I thought Iowa was a, was six, eight points better than Purdue last week. And, and you could say, yeah, with, without those turnovers, but that's part of the game. I like the matchup for Iowa. I don't see Northwestern is not as explosive. I don't see them being able to find one weak spot and say, okay, we have one guy that can win over and over again, like Purdue had. So I, I have a tough time watching them and seeing a way for them to get to 20 above 24. And I'll say it again, the Iowa offense should be able to get to that number pretty much every game. There's just too many weapons. There's, you know, too much that they have, not just with weapons, but the physicality, the defense can get stops. If they can get some short field situations and, you know, special teams, a weapon, uh, Last week, it was really good, except for the kick return game. Um, I think we see that. And I think I said I thought Amir was going to have a breakout game last week. I think he and Laporta are guys that I'm really interested to see. And I think they're going to have – they're going to be the two that have the big game this week. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I, I, I said that Iowa could probably beat Purdue by double digits or would beat Purdue by double digits. So – but, you know, it's just one of those teams that kind of lingers, and Northwestern is also another team that kind of lingers. But with that said, I don't think the turnaround from Northwestern based on last season is that drastic um, to sort of warrant them being better than Iowa. You know, we t- I, I talked about it right when I was introducing, introducing uh, Northwestern in this podcast. We don't really know who they are. There's a lot of unproven bodies. With Iowa, there's – a lot of proven bodies and then some I on both sides of the ball, Iowa should win this game by double digits. I, it, it just based on talent and the way they looked in week one, you knock off all those ridiculous penalties and the unfortunately timed uh, fumbles. And it's, you know, they probably beat Purdue. Um, I don't want to say, you know, do the, the what ifs, but they probably beat Purdue if they knock off those penalties and don't have those fumbles and I believe that they probably clean that up heading into this week and they're able to beat Northwestern by double digits. So that's sort of my prediction on that as well. Yeah, I think, I think that's right, right on it. I think my final number that I, I feel like it's going to be 27, 17, 27, 18 type score. I just don't see Northwestern being able to make enough big plays offensively. They're going to be better than they were last year, obviously offensively, but they got shut out. 
and it wasn't even close in terms of that last year. And the Iowa offense um, should be better because the run game should be there. And all those pieces aligned to me, they're back in Kinnick. You know, they're going to be out, ready to go, even with no crowd. I mean, it's still Kinnick, you know, still historic Kinnick Stadium. And I think we see those things get cleaned up. How often does an Iowa team make those sort of mistakes two weeks in a row? So they're going to get those things cleaned up. They're going to find a way to get more points. I think we see a few more wrinkles offensively with that wildcat. Uh, I think we see more of the jet motions and some end rounds and, and a way to stress that Northwestern defense and make those linebackers really have to chase all game. Yeah. And you said it earlier that I don't think that Northwestern sort of has a guy other than maybe Isaiah Bowser that you can just feed and he'll make plays on his own, either on the defensive side or offensive side with Purdue. You had George Karloftis, uh, number 15 Mitchell for Purdue uh, on Saturday made some plays for them as well. They had Lorenzo Neal. They have a lot of these guys. And when you look at Northwestern, you know, Patty Fisher uh, definitely is a guy who's a playmaker, but on the offensive side, you just don't really know. There's a lot of, you know, bodies that are unproven and a lot of guys who that are proven are just, you kind of know what they are. They're not going to really elevate an offense to different heights. So it's kind of interesting to see how, uh, this game will play out on Saturday because it's going to be Northwestern's sort of for, for first test with this sort of new look team that they have. Um, but before we head out, you know, Thad and I would definitely like to thank all of you for the love you showed on the last podcast. Um, you know, I filled them in on the numbers that we got uh, before we talked today and it was well over 1000 views and 1000 downloads. And that was really cool to see, you know, especially considering that Thad and I, had no idea how this would turn out prior to that first podcast. And we had never actually even interacted with each other outside of Twitter or Slack group chats. So we're both really glad that, you know, you all checked it out. And if you continue to show some love on it, you know, we'll try our best to keep pumping these out weekly for you. And with that said, um, dad, do you have any last words you would like to leave people with? Uh, let us know, chime in on the comments. Let us know if you want to hear about something, us to break something down. Uh, looking forward to watching the Hawks this week back in Kinnick. And I just think we see uh, those steps forward. You know, usually Iowa gets that first game against a lower level opponent. And this time it was a big 10 opponent. So they weren't able to overcome some of those, but I think they do this week. And I think everybody leaves this game saying, all right, that's the, that's the Iowa football team that we were expecting in 2020. Yeah, that's the hope. I, I really do think that this could be a win. And, you know, given how Iowa looked last weekend, there were some things that definitely need to be cleaned up, but it wasn't, um, and it, it wasn't a terrible performance. And there's definitely a lot to grow on and be optimistic about. And so with that said, we're going to leave you guys here. Uh, you can follow me at Rob DFB. You can follow Thad on Twitter at TNels20. Um, and with that said, we'll see you guys next weekend. Thank you.